Hi, everybody. Thank you for welcoming us into your home and a special shout out to Aldergrove CLCC. It's great to be seen and it's great to see you. We're beginning a brand new series this week called Stories Around the Campfire. And today I want to talk about the fact that Jesus cooked breakfast for the disciples around the campfire. This new summer series about fire is, is, is really just about stories, about uh, things that happened around fire or campfires in the Old and New Testament. Now, campfires, I, I think, are kind of like rest stops on life's journey. Uh, they're a time to relax, to reflect, to warm ourselves, to spend quality time with friends and family. In fact, some of my favorite memories are times that we spent just sitting around a campfire, uh, campfires in scripture are, are important and, and really reflect significant moments when you think of the burning bush and the call of Moses to deliver the children of Israel. Think of the pillar of fire that led the children of Israel through the wilderness. Think of the fire that came down from heaven and consumed the sacrifice during Elijah's time in the confrontation with the prophets of Baal. And we also think in the New Testament in terms of tongues of fire during the day of Pentecost when the Holy Spirit uh, filled the disciples. And so we're going to be this summer season talking about fire and campfires, kind of a relaxing kind of series, and we're going to kind of find out some of the things that we can learn from, from these particular, um, what, expressions of, of God's presence, because fire in the Old and New Testament represents the Holy Spirit, uh, the divine presence. So we're going to look at John chapter 21, verse 1 to 14 today. This is a post-resurrection appearance of Jesus to the disciples in John's gospel. It's a rather long text, and what I'll do is I'll read some of the text, and then I'll, I'll uh, chat about some of the things that are going on in the text, and then we'll pray. Afterward, Jesus appeared again to his disciples by the Sea of Galilee. It happened this way. Simon Peter, Thomas, also, called, also known as Didymus. Now, this Thomas is the person we usually refer to as Doubting Thomas because in the previous chapter of John's Gospel, he wouldn't believe that Jesus had risen from the dead unless he touched the nail prints in his hand and, and where the spear was in his side. And remember that he, Jesus did appear and did allow Thomas the verification that he was indeed risen from the dead. Well, let's continue. Nathaniel from Canaan in Galilee the sons of Zebedee. This is referring to James and John, the two brothers who with Simon Peter were professional fishermen who were called. And John, of course, is the author of this gospel. And he refers to him as the disciple whom Jesus loved. He tends not to refer himself by his name. And two other unnamed disciples were there together that day. I'm going out to fish, Simon Peter told them. And they said, we'll go with you. So they went out and got into a boat, but that night they caught nothing. Now, it wasn't unusual for fishermen to fish at night in those days because of the lack of refrigeration. They fished at night, and then they'd sell the fish in the marketplace in the morning. So that's what's going on. Early in the morning, Jesus stood on the shore, but the disciples did not realize that it was Jesus. He called out to them, friends, haven't you any fish? Now, it was quite usual that uh, the disciples did not recognize Jesus during the post-resurrection experiences, and there's been lots of speculation of why that could be. 
Uh, several of the resurrection experiences uh, happen early in the morning, and perhaps it was because of the lack of light. Perhaps Jesus was wearing a hood, and they couldn't quite see his face. Or I, I think the explanation that I like the best is that the resurrected body of Jesus, like our resurrected bodies, uh, will be uh, without any scars or any um, uh, aging effects from life on this earth. And I, I think that the last time they saw Jesus compared to the resurrected body would be quite a contrast because the last time they saw Jesus, Jesus was uh, being crucified and he would be horribly disfigured. And that could partially, partially, partially be an, an explanation of why they don't recognize Jesus in his resurrected body. So he asked them, friends, haven't you any fish? No, they answered. He said, throw your net on the right side of the boat and you will find some. When they did, they were unable to haul the net in because of the large number of fish. Now, this might not be the miracle that we expect it might be because it seems that there was a method of fishing back in those days where one of the members of the fishing crew would stand on the shore and would try to spot where the schools of fish were. And the people in the boat who stand directly over the water or looking down to the water perhaps couldn't see the school of fish as well as the person who's standing on the shore. So it was quite, un quite usual for someone on the shore to be trying to spot the schools of fish for the people in the boat. And so it could be that Jesus is uh, just doing something rather natural here and that it's not quite the miracle that we expect is. But, but listen, often... God uses natural means to create miraculous results. You remember that, that uh, Jesus, or, or God during the, uh, during the deliverance of the children of Israel from Egypt, when they came to the Red Sea, it says that he caused a wind to come. And this is what separates the sea and allows the Israelites to cross. And uh, we think also in, 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 uh, in terms of, of, of today that, that sometimes God uses physicians uh, to be instrumental in our healing. Sometimes he uses chemotherapy to be, to be instrumental in our healing. So God does use natural means supernaturally, and uh, miracles happen often in the Bible through natural means, but God superintends these things. Then the disciple whom Jesus loved, that's John, said to Peter, it is the Lord. He recognizes. As soon as Simon Peter heard it say it is the Lord, he wrapped his outer garment around him, for he had taken it off and jumped into the water. Now this sounds a bit strange to us, because normally when you're going to jump in the water, you don't put more clothing on. You take clothing off to free it from swimming. But the fact that he's putting this uh, outer garment on, and perhaps he's fishing with just a loincloth on or with just shorts on, uh, indicates something. Uh, in, in Jewish... Um, what? Etiquette. It was really important that when you greeted someone, uh, even semi-formally, that you were fully clothed. It wasn't appropriate to have no shirt on. It was appropriate to be fully clothed, to be dressed up to the best that you could be when you greeted someone. That, that was important. And I think Peter uh, has had this challenge that he's denied the Lord, and, and perhaps he's feeling a bit guilty because of all that. He's rushing to go meet with Jesus. He's trying to make amends. He formally puts on his outer clothing, even though he's jumping into the water, so that he can uh, uh, meet Jesus uh, with his, what, basically on, on his best behavior, putting his best foot forward, so to speak, as he's, as he's trying to go and meet the Lord and make right his uh, denial that had happened during the crucifixion. The other disciples followed the boat, towing the net full of fish. 
They were not far from shore, about 100 yards. When they landed, they saw a fire burning of burning coals there with fish on it and some bread. Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish you have just caught. So Simon Peter climbed back into the boat and dragged them to the shore. It was full of large fish, 153. But even with so many, the net was not torn. Now I'm going to come back to this later, but it's significant that they numbered the fish. And it's significant that the net was not broken. Because in the first miraculous catch of fish from Luke's gospel, if you remember that story, the net began to break. There were so many fish. But this time, the net's not torn, and there are 153 fish exactly. Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. None of the disciples dared to ask, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Jesus came took the bread and gave it to them and did the same with the fish. This was now the third time Jesus appeared to his disciples after he was raised from the dead. This is the third time in John's gospel. In the previous chapter, he had met with them twice. When the room was locked, he somehow came through the wall or through the door and appeared to them. The first time without Thomas, the second time with Thomas. So this is the third appearance in a different kind of circumstance outside that Jesus appears to his disciples in John's gospel. Let's pray. So Father, thank you for your word today. Thank you for it gives us some insight into how you respond to, well, the trauma and the difficulty and the, and the challenges of living in this life and perhaps failing to, to be all that we want to be or need to be and uh, are called to be. So Lord, thank you for your grace in our lives. Thank you for your forgiveness. Thank you for your character. Thank you that you love us. In your name we pray, amen. Well, there's some things that we want to look at in this text that, that just, just pop out. First of all, notice the location of the story. It's by the Sea of Galilee. Now, now this should ring some bells on our brains because this is not where they should be. In Luke chapter 24, verse 49, Jesus said to them, one of his uh, resurrection experiences, or, or uh, just before, he says, I'm going to send you what my father has promised, but stay in the city until you have been clothed with power from on high. In other words, some of the last things that Jesus said to the disciples was, stay in Jerusalem, wait until the Holy Spirit from power from on high will come to anoint you with power to be my witnesses. Stay in the city. Well, they're in the wrong place. They're not in the city. They're at the Sea of Galilee. This is 150 kilometers north. This, that's quite a trek. They had gone north 150 kilometers, and actually, they, they'd gone home. This was the home of most of the, most of the disciples. They, they're going back to, to get some of mom's cooking. They were going back to friends. They were going back to family. They're going back to where it was safe and secure. Because, well, Jerusalem was a, a bit of a dangerous place for the disciples to be. It was kind of like uh, there was a lot, of, a lot of concern about who Jesus was and in the story of the resurrection and all the rest was going on. And, and they've gone to the Sea of Galilee up north where there isn't such hostility to them, where it's safe, where they feel they can perhaps be themselves, where they can feel they can be with family, uh, but they were supposed to be in Jerusalem. Notice that they're doing also the wrong thing. In John chapter 20, the previous chapter, Jesus commissions them to share the good news. He says to them, as the Father has sent me, so send I you into the world. And so even at that early point, even before the day of Pentecost, 
They're being commissioned to share the good news. They're commissioned to, to be his disciples, to follow after him, to share the good news of the kingdom. And he breathes on them at that point. He says, receive the Holy Spirit. Whoever sins you forgive are forgiven. Whosoever sins you don't forgive are not forgiven. In other words, the gospel is going to have this effect on people, and you're supposed to share the gospel. Well, they're not sharing the gospel. They're fishing. Remember also in Luke chapter 5, during that first miraculous catch of fish, very early in the gospel story, very early in the call of the disciples, he said to them to leave their nets and come after them. And he said to them, from now on, you will catch men. You now will be fishers of men. Well, they're in the wrong place. They're doing the wrong thing. This sounds very much to me like discouragement. You see, there are 50 days between the crucifixion and the day of Pentecost, 50 days of waiting, and perhaps they became restless, perhaps they became bored, perhaps they became afraid, they're leaderless, uh, Peter has betrayed the Lord, he has not yet been reinstated, this is going to happen later in this chapter when Jesus asks him to feed his sheep and kind of recommissions him and, and make sure that he's, his relationship with Peter and Peter's relationship with him are right. Uh, and fishing's familiar. Um, Peter, James, and John are professional fishermen. That's what their parents' job was, that's what they did for a living. And I think also this, this looks very much like avoidance behavior. Uh, have you ever, uh, when you're stressed or, or when you're going through a difficult time, just gone back to do things that are familiar, that are comforting? Uh, you know, whatever, and it's different, it means different things for, for different people, but I, I think this is really avoidance behavior by the disciples. They knew what they should be doing, they knew where they should be, but they're stressed and they're just going fishing to try to ease the tension, so to speak. Now, let's look at how Jesus responds to their disobedience. He cooks breakfast. <laughs> he doesn't rebuke them. He doesn't even criticize them. He stands on the shore. He helps them with their fishing by telling them where the school of fish is. And then he cooks breakfast for them and he serves them. Wow. In fact, this whole encounter is set up by Jesus to remind them of their first encounter in Luke chapter 5, verse 1 to 11. Remember, there was another fruitless night of fishing. There was another cast your net on the other side of the boat. There was another miraculous catch of fish when the net began to break, and he called them to be fishermen. So the whole story, the whole scene is set by Jesus at this particular moment to be reminiscent of their first call to be fishers of men. And so he uses this to challenge them, to encourage them, to remind them about their role as fishers of men. What a tremendous boss Jesus was. Uh, uh, not, you know, I, I think most of us have experienced really bad bosses, uh, bad experiences with bosses. I remember one time I worked for a boss who was really hot-tempered, and if anybody made a mistake, he would just fly right off the handle and just, just uh, pitch a fit. Remember one time we were uh, building a concrete block building, and actually his father-in-law was the block layer, and he had laid out the first three courses of the building, and he had forgotten to leave room for the doorway. <laughs> there was no door space. And, and when the boss came and he saw this, he, he just went nuts. He just started to scream at his father-in-law and swear, and he started to kick the blocks. And, and the first couple of courses of, of bricks, uh, he kicked them over, 
And uh, they were pretty easy to kick over because the mortar was still kind of wet and uh, they were, they were, it hasn't, hadn't set yet. But when he came to the last course of bricks or blocks and he hauled off and he kicked as hard as he could, the brick didn't move and he really hurt his foot. And then he started to scream and jump around in pain. Well, all of us young guys who were there, we couldn't stop laughing because it looked so funny. You ever have a boss like that who just lost it when people made mistakes, who just flew off the handle into a rage? That's not Jesus. Jesus, knowing they've messed up, he meets them at the point of their need. And, and Peter is particularly needy because he's betrayed the Lord and, and that hasn't yet been settled or made right. And, and, and he, he needs to make that right. And he's going to have a private conversation with Jesus towards the end of this chapter where Jesus is going to ask him if he loves him and then if he really loves him to feed his sheep. In other words, don't go fishing, feed the sheep. Be who you have been called to be, in other words, very gently, very lovingly. Uh, very privately, except John the gospel really overhears the conversation so he can record it for us. But there's the loving Jesus. What kind of a boss is Jesus? I think we need to keep this story in mind uh, the next time we mess up. And you know, everybody messes up. Everybody goes through the valley. Everybody has a divot in their experience, uh, in, in their obedience. You know, in, in fact, in order for there to be mountaintops, there's always got to be a valley in between. And between the resurrection and Pentecost, there's this valley. And there's this, this time of depression, this time of anxiety, this time of, of being leaderless and restless and, and pensive and, and all of those things where they, they, they just lose it and they're not doing what they should be doing. And so in our lives, we go through times where, where we just mess up. How does Jesus respond to that? Well, he responds well. He loves us. He meets us at the point of our need. Now, I, I promised that I would talk about this idea that 153 fish were caught. Whenever the Bible mentions these kind of specific details where they're, they're, they're really not necessary, like, like, like you think, who would care how many fish were caught? And why would they take the time to, catch, to count the fish? It's a peculiar detail. And there have been a lot of fanciful speculation regarding this number and, and why it's there. In fact, St. Augustine in the 4th century came up with a very fanciful kind of explanation. He said that probably the 10 represents the law, the Ten Commandments, and the seven represents grace because seven is the, is the perfect number. And when you add 10 and seven together, it equals 17. Now, if you add, you've got to follow this, if you add one plus two plus three plus four plus five all the way up to 17, guess what? It equals 153. So that must be what it means. It's, it's about uh, God's grace and about God's law that are being fulfilled in this catch of fish. Well, that's pretty fanciful. I think the, the number probably represents the number of species of fish known in the first century. Because they believed that there were 153 species of fish in all of the oceans and seas of that age. And I, I, I think that what it's representing is that uh, every species of fish, or uh, in, in, uh, in metaphorical terms, that the reach of the kingdom of God would reach every people group, every kind of person, every race, every tribe, every nationality would be reached by the gospel as, as this net, this fullness of the net, and the fact that the net doesn't break, that it, that, that it 
contains all the fish, is, I think, illustrative of this idea that when they become fishers of men, they would capture all of those people from all over the world who Jesus wants them to catch, and not one will be lost. So what was Jesus really like? Well, he responds well to our discouragement. He is extremely forgiving. You know, sometimes when we need to forgive someone, we, we have this little dialogue, this little battle in our brains that says something like this. Well, if I forgive them, will they really have learned their lesson? If I forgive them, will I really just let them off the hook? Don't, don't they know, need to know that that was wrong? And, and by forgiving them, maybe, maybe they won't learn the lesson. You know what? Jesus is always forgiving. He always has more grace, and He gives it to us freely. And notice as well that Jesus gives his hands dirty. <laughs> he serves. He cooks breakfast. However that entailed, however he got those fish to cook, he, he created the coals. Um, he created the fire pit. Uh, he put the fish in the pit. He, he cooked the bread. He gets his hands dirty. He's the kind of Savior who is willing to serve. He calls us to serve others as he serves us. Acts chapter 1 verse 8 Jesus said, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea, Samaria, and to the uttermost parts of the earth. Let's pray. So, Father, thank you that you are a loving, gentle, forgiving Savior. That's who you are. That's your character. Thank you, Lord, that although at times we, we mess up and we, we fail to serve you as we should, we fail to obey and, and follow even the simplest of your instructions. We thank you that you love us enough so that you extend your love to us, your forgiveness to us. You're not a harsh Jesus. You're not a Jesus who berates us. Perhaps we've been brought up in families where that's been the case, or perhaps we've had work experiences where we've been treated harshly if we have uh, missed the mark. But Lord, thank you for this example of your love and grace in our lives. I pray, Lord, for those who perhaps are feeling distanced from you, who feel perhaps alienated from you, and perhaps are afraid to approach you because of, well, how you might respond. Help them to keep this story in mind and see you as the loving, forgiving, gracious Jesus that you really are. In your name we pray. Amen. For those of you online, here's the question of the day. Maybe you've been reluctant to talk to Jesus about what's going on in your life. Realizing how he responds to the disciples, take a moment and talk to him. There'll be some music playing, so I'll give you a few moments to think about that.
Perhaps you didn't notice, but in the Gospel of John, John chapter 21 is a postscript. It's a bit of an afterthought at the end of the letter. Chapter 20, verse 31, sounds as if it's the end of the letter. It says something like this. Uh, Jesus did many miraculous signs to prove that he was the Messiah. And uh, these are written so that you would believe. And then he goes on with this story, which seems to be in addition to the two previous stories. And then at the end of this chapter, he'll say almost the same thing as he does at the end of the previous chapter. He, he'll say, and Jesus did many other signs or miracles. And in fact, if we were to try to record them all, there wouldn't be enough books in the world to record them. And so we see that this chapter 21 is a postscript. It, it's a, oh yeah, I need to say this. And there's been a lot of uh, theories about uh, why it's appended, added, or why John thought to include it. We see, first of all, uh, John wants us to know of Peter's recommission. And, and I think without this chapter in John's gospel, we're kind of left hanging. Well, what happened with Peter? Was, was, was this, this problem in Peter's life, this betrayal, never really resolved? And, and he wants us to know that it was resolved, that Jesus did forgive him and did reinstate him as, as the leader of the disciples. Uh, secondly, I, I think the last part of the chapter helps to quell que uh, a rumor that John would not die. If you want to read that, look at verses 22 and 23, where John basically says, what Jesus said to Peter about uh, me living until he doesn't mean that I'm going to live forever. Uh, I, I could pass away. And so he clears up a rumor. I think that the most important thing that, that John is trying to tell us here, though, in this, this postscript chapter, is that Jesus ate with the disciples. He actually sat down just like a friend. He cooked breakfast with them just like a servant. He ate with them. Now, now think of it this way. Uh, Jesus, during his earthly life, uh, came across as being a human that uh, at moments appeared divine. Uh, at moments, he appeared divine when he did the miracles, when he cast out demons, when he, he answered the, 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 the very tough questions of the Pharisees, when he healed the lepers, when he raised the dead. He seemed mostly human, but then with, with this divine uh, bursts uh, that would, would come out of his life. Now, you think that after Jesus dies, he's risen from the dead, he goes to heaven, he sits at the right hand of the Father. He now becomes king of kings and lord of lords. Now, if you look at another writing of John, the book of Revelation, we see him, the lamb on the throne. We see him as the, the one who holds the seven stars in his hand. We see him as the one who rides the white horse, who has the flaming sword in his mouth. We see this, this divine Jesus, this, this God, the God Jesus, in, in all of his glory, in all of his majesty, in, in all of his power. We see that picture of Jesus. And, and, and we might be tempted to think that this resurrected Jesus is, is removed. He's aloof. He's, he's far away. But here we have the resurrected of Jesus. This is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. This is the one whose all, all the power of the universe has been put into his hands. He sustains all things through his being, and he's there cooking breakfast and hanging out with a group of fishermen. I, I think that's the picture that John wants us to hear and see about who Jesus is, this King of kings, this Lord of lords, this resurrected Jesus, this triumphant Savior. He's the kind of Savior who sits around the campfire, cooks breakfast, serves breakfast, eats breakfast with his friends. Ah, 
That's the kind of Jesus we serve. Come to him. Talk to him. Confess your sins to him. He is always willing and available to hear. Our doxology for this series is from Revelation chapter 1, verse 5b to 6. To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and has made us to be a kingdom of and priest to serve his God and Father. To him be glory and power forever and ever. Amen. God bless you. Have a great week.